do enterprises need to build a strong foundation model like an LLM, like a, an open AI, you know, GPT-4? I, I think the answer to that is for most companies is no. Welcome to a brand new episode of our podcast, Human and AI, Mind Machines and the Gradient Sand. Thanks for tuning in to our geeky podcast to discuss the fascinating field of AI and machine learning, corporate craziness, passion for technology and the role of humans. We are Uli and Avery, your hosts for this episode. And I guess, Uli, do you remember the climate conference? It just wrapped up last week. Uh, so maybe let's shift the focus to... Buildings today. Well, why don't buildings? Well, did you know that buildings contribute a whopping 37% of global yearly carbon emissions? Really? That's enormous chunk, isn't it? What else? And that reduction targets are really crucial because over 75% of the necessary carbon emission reduction has, has to come from avoided demand, energy efficiency or electrification of building systems. That sounds already challenging. And then, what about the regulations, anyway? Um, surprisingly, despite these facts, only 35% of countries have mandatory building energy regulations that dictate how energy efficient a building should be when constructed. So that's quite a gap, is it? Right. But how does we bring now this number crunching from you into our podcast conversation today? Yeah, that's a good question. But let me introduce you to someone who's making waves in addressing these challenges. Colm Nee, CTO and product leader at Enlighted. Colm is passionate about understanding customer problems and solving them with modern technology. He's an innovative leader, driving the technical vision to achieve Enlighten's mission and is particularly keen on creating technologies that benefit everyone and the planet. He's on a constant journey to be a better, more empathetic leader and considers quickly earned failures to be valuable learning experiences. Plus, he's an advocate for topics such as the future of work, sustainable technology and climate change mitigation and so much more. Calm, that's called Lobhudelei uh, in Germany. That's a German expression for a marvelous introduction of yourself. So, hey, welcome to the show. Great. Uh, thanks for having me. Becoming a CTO likely requires a deep passion for one's work. What specifically captivates you about your role? Mm. You know, the, re the reason I joined Enlighted, I think, still is still true today to a certain extent. You know, I was working, going back a little bit in history, I, I was a data engineer and a, a, a data scientist within financial services. And... Um, the challenge I had with financial services is, you know, the problems are really meaningful, right? The decisions you take and the, the products affect millions of people and their retirement. But it, it just felt, I felt quite removed from the customer. And then um, I decided I, I wanted to change. I wanted to do something different. And I was looking around and then I stumbled across Enlighted. And you had kind of this mixture of sustainability technology with a really practical application, so smart lighting controls. Um, and you had this mixture of, of hardware, this, this software, this, this wireless technology, and I was just captivated by it. I, I, I said to myself, okay, I have to work for this company. And so I actually um, got hired by the, the, the founder of Enlighted, Tanuj Mohan, who's, who's no longer with Siemens. Um, and he was... Again, a really just a really passionate uh, visionary and, and tech leader, and so I learned a lot from him. Um, but I think as a CTO, you know, you need to you need to be passionate about not only the technology but on the problems you're solving, because a lot of the the challenges that I see people run into is they fall in love with the technology, they don't fall in love with the problem. But I think to have longevity. In any role or in any industry, you've got to really fall in love with both. And the successful people really do fall in love with both. Yeah, so um, that's probably what I, what I enjoy about my role. And I've been lucky that, um, you know, Siemens has continued to invest a lot in Enlighted's R&D. So we've been able to do some, to keep innovating and do some pretty, pretty interesting things. 
So what what is enlightened in a one minute elevator pitch? What is what is the stake on on enlightened? One minute elevator pitch. I'll set the timer. Okay. Ninety five, ninety eight. So what? No. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I. I'd say Enlighted's a data company that, that solves problems at the intersection of, of people, space, and work. And, you know, we do this in two ways. Um, the first is through our, our advanced lighting controls and IoT system, so a sensory system that not only uses data to, to make decisions on, on what's happening with the lights, on what's happening with the HVAC, but then also collects data about what's happening in the space to um, transform how, the, how operations are run in that space. Um, you know, and the second way we do this is is through our occupant experience app, Comfy. Um, and this really connects people to their workplace. So my elevator pitch would be, if you're a facility manager or a real estate executive um, who's trying to create a sustainable and energy efficient building, or you're looking to provide technology uh, to, to help people get more out of their time in the office, then you should give us a call. Well, that's crisp. Two, two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Colm, in the in the beginning, you already mentioned that what fascinates you or what you're passionate about is like that combination between tech and sustainability. And just a few weeks ago, Enlighted was actually acknowledged by Fast Company for its cutting-edge IoT solutions that help organizations to achieve their energy efficiency and sustainability go goals. By the way, that's such a great achievement. Uh, what role do tech and sustainability really play at Enlighted? How does that come to life? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, we're, we're hugely honored to be recognized in this way by the Fast Company. Um, we're actually recognized, little plug, as as one of the four next big technologies in sustainability and, and energy for, for 2023. And sustainability is a huge part of what we do. Uh, and it's why a lot of our people choose to work for us. Um, so look, you know, you, you touched upon it in your opening, right? Buildings are big emitters of operational carbon emissions, mm -hmm. um, which is probably what most people think about when they think about sustainability, they think about carbon, they think about climate change. And then, you know, you mentioned some statistics, 37% of, of operational carbon emissions come from buildings. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely true if you factor in uh, the embodied carbon and the full, full construction supply chain, um, it, it's actually really high. Um, so it's a big problem that the industry is, is grappling with. And by the way, you know, we humans need buildings to live in, to work in, and to connect in. Um, so it's a problem, I think, that, that motivates all of us. Um, I think the problem is a lot of attention goes into new buildings, um, which tend to be more energy efficient uh, and have more modern technology. And of course, when you're building an, a new building, that's a good time to look at, at making it energy efficient. Um, but there's a lot of building stock um, out there which is already built, and it's going to continue to be used, um, which means we will need to renovate a lot of the old building stock with with energy-efficient technologies. Um, and it turns out there really aren't that many great ways to move the needle on energy consumption uh, without avoiding unnecessary demand. So you, you, you spoke a little bit about that in your in your opening. And this means, you know, turning off the lights um, when there's nobody in the building, um, optimizing the, the HVAC, so the heating, ventilation, and, and climate control system, um, you know, not, not powering plug loads, so devices that are in the space when there's nobody there. Um, and so that's, that's really where Enlighted comes in because um, we're able to detect all of this with our sensory system. So a lot of the work we've been doing is really to make it easier to share this information across building systems. Mm -hmm. um, and then where we do control, so we control the lights, for example, to actually provide um, a technology which drives very high energy savings. So this is a bit of contradictive uh, to, to how I teach my kids, actually. I try to change and influence their behavior. And so, like, if you leave the room, you know, make the lights out, right? Or to turn down the, the heater and or AC down and stuff like that, right? So... Would you say, like, you know, this technology will help, you know, it's not about the human adopting 
the behaviors, right? Being more thoughtful with resources and also energy, right? And building, but it's rather, let's have small, putting it's on the automation task rather and say so like, you know, even though obviously both maybe have a role, I don't know, I'm happy to hear your views, yeah, yeah. but um, it's putting, you know, leverage in first place, the, you know, the smartness of buildings, turning them into intelligence um, and at the same time, human. Is that right here? I think it's a mixture. Okay. Um, and I think it's exactly the right conversation because there's always a trade-off, right? So with energy efficiency, more often than not, that trade-off is comfort mm. or convenience. Mm. And I think having the controls com capability, so having a system which can actually make these decisions autonomously without a human having to take action, so let's assume humans have good intentions, right? And humans want to, you know, um, provide, um, you know, not use lights when they're not in the room, for example. Mm -hmm. um, well, what happens if they don't? Um, and that's where controls come in and automation comes in. And I think even, you know, within the commercial space, it's a little bit different from your home, right? Where you're, you make all the decisions yourself. You know, in a commercial space, there's often different people with different, that want different things. So um, one of the reasons why the Comfy app was successful initially was because, um, you know, the just small detour on history, the initial version of the Comfy app allowed you to vote on whether you thought a space was too hot or too cold. So you would basically enter your, your choice into the Comfy app, and then this would be used to dynamically um, adjust the HVAC system and, and adjust the... the 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 level of, of temperature in a in a in a given space, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so one of the interesting things that we saw when we did this was that if you give people control and autonomy, you can also then change the profile of behavior. So just by giving people control, what we noticed is you could set the the HVAC bounds. So the the which basically means the you know the the um, scope of acceptable temperatures for a human, you could make that wider. And that, that, drew, that gave you energy savings, mm. right? And it did so technically at the cost of comfort, mm. um, but it also made people feel empowered. And so, I, you know, when I think about this intersection between um, human comfort and, and automation, I think about systems like that. Yeah, it's so important to have the people or the users in the loop and that they also have a certain degree of autonomy to also decide like how the temperature, for instance, should be. So it's also like perceived probably more more positively. Though preference, so okay, okay, human has a preference and can edit, configure something kind of aspects. So it's still a bit of thinking about your what, what kind of preference you have and put it on, on controls, right? Though I guess that need, needs a lot of scales, it reminds me on smart metering, right? Smart metering effectively works then if you have the scale. So if you, you know, if you can, I don't know, have the demand forecast or the loads, right, which needed for energy demands in this case, if you have it at scale at your district or, you know, even greater, that gives you actually a really power of, you know, moving the needle, I would say, in, in, in you know, in balancing you know, the grid stuff, right? How do you see the parallels in, you know, how many buildings right or squares or people you know need to embrace that in order to really move the middle do you have do you have any feeling for scale right yeah that's a good question and you know we track our, our customers and you know we essentially in enlighted we have two brands right we have the enlighted brand which is the smart lighting iot solution and we have the comfy brand which is the workplace experience mm -hmm. app and so we know who our customers are um I think, though, to a certain extent, you're right. One of the big challenges for society to solve is how to really get scale in these technologies because, you know, even on the workplace experience side, I've, I've given up trying to track how many software companies there are, very local ones often that are trying to do something in, in workplace technology. And I think the, the problem that the industry is still grappling with is, is one of, of interoperability, so, um, and there are some, some pretty key reasons for this, but it, if you look at any building, you know, there are a number of different subsystems. You have a lighting system, 
you have a HVAC system, you have a security system, uh, and there are more. Mm-hmm. But these are the three main ones that every building has. And um, typically, these are also procured by three different channels or through three different channels. So what that means is when you, when you scale this up and look at different buildings, each one is kind of unique. Um, so it's kind of like a snowflake. Um, and even when you look at you know, single companies that own and operate a lot of space themselves, um, they'll, have different, they'll choose different vendors for different, for different buildings. Um, and so what you, what you end up with is a connection of snowflakes, which doesn't really scale. And this is where I think AI can, can play an important role because what we're not good at doing in our industry is having these systems talk to each other in a coherent way. So sharing what they know about the building with each other. This is still a, a massive problem. And when I think about how we could use AI to apply to this problem of, of processing all this data and gathering an intelligence from this data, simply to share information across different buildings, this is one way that we'll get to scale. Uh, we're not there yet, mm-hmm. um, but the problem you described is, is real, and um, it's something that we're, we're looking at with, with a lot of interest. So that means the building misses the OPCUA momentum, <laughs> you know, connectivity. But we t- you touched already on AI. Let's 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 talk a bit of, uh, about AI. How do you uh, what what role does AI and machine learning play in in Lighted? You know, how do you do? You have a couple of use cases to share. On the yeah, pipeline? I mean, you know, I think it's AI is so broad nowadays, and so there's just a lot of power in in what you can do, that it's hard to enumerate all the use cases. But one that I think about a lot in my role is the human aspect of sustainability. Because when we think about sustainability, we think about energy savings. But if you if you go back to it and you ask yourself the question, okay, why why are buildings such a still still such a big problem um, with carbon emissions? It, it always comes back to humans and the decisions that humans are taking. And I think one of the underappreciated facts just in general but also applies to buildings is that as a result of the the global COVID-19 pandemic a lot of people left the workforce a lot of people chose to take early retirement um, and there wasn't enough people to replace them and this was accelerating a, a demographic shift that is already happening so it was already happening but COVID accelerated it. And as a result, you know, when I have the pleasure of speaking to a lot of customers in my role, and when I go there and speak with customers, it doesn't really mat- matter what industry they're in. They're, they're all telling me the same thing, is it's really hard to get the people. And so, you know, it's interesting listening to the public discourse about AI, because a lot of it is, oh, AI is going to steal all our jobs. But I, honestly, I, I take a little bit of a contrarian view on this, and that's that there's a lot of jobs that currently aren't done because there's not people there to do them. And they either don't have the training or there's just not that critical mass of people. And so a lot of what we do at Enlighted is is we really try and go beyond just you know using AI to spit out facts about the building or even recommend things. We really try and go go to automation and so one of the customers that i spoke to recently wanted to use our um, real-time location services system which is basically like an indoor gps system um, to automate um, the management of clinical equipment in a hospital and but and the reason why he was so interested in this was because he had someone in his team a domain expert who was close to retirement and he didn't have um, any way of replacing her, and he didn't have the budget to replace her. So he was looking to use technology to solve what is inherently a very human problem. Mm. So I think everything traces back to humans, and that's the common thread, whether we're talking about societal problems or we're talking about energy savings. Mm.
what you were also sharing is that you're in, in close touch also with your customers. And um, in the beginning, uh, I also said that you're not only the CTO of Enlighted, but you're also a product leader. So I'm curious to, to learn more about uh, what role actually user centricity or maybe lean startup methods um, play for you in your day-to-day -day job. And how do you actually approach product development at Enlighted? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, user centricity is, is key. We literally have a product initiative this year, and we have five, so I won't bore you with the others, but one of them is user-centric workflows. That's literally what it's called. And I think, in general, when you look at building technologies, a lot of the software was developed over decades. And a lot of it was developed by engineers for engineers. Now, I'm an engineer by training, so I know I'm insulting myself here. But it, I think in general, when um, engineers make design decisions about products um, without having the right training, this results in, in highly configurable, highly customizable software that's very difficult to use. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the thing, a lot of the, the, the focus in our user-centric workflows initiative is really to go back to first principles, um, do user, like good old-fashioned user research, which is speaking with our customers, watching them as they're using our product, looking at how they actually interact with the product, um, pr putting instrumentation in our product so that we know when a user make, clicks on our software in a certain place, we know, we know that that's happening. And so we actually know how, they, how they're using the software. Because a lot of the time... Um, people will tell you something that's different compared to reality. So they'll tell you reality is a certain way. When you actually look at how they behave, you, you find out, okay, this is not aligned with what they were telling us. And I think the reason is, you know, humans are good at, are good at finding problems, but they're less good at suggesting solutions. And really that's what, what, that's what um, user-centric software development is about. It's about the solutions to the problems. Um, so we do a lot on the user research side. We also hire um, product designers who, who constantly look at how they can redesign our software to make it more optimized and easier to use. And so it's, that's a big investment for us. And I think it, it helps us differentiate from the competition as well. How do you, how do you see, is it um, our clients and partners actually open to go in this direction with you because I, um, I don't know if, you know, I said, I give me the stuff and I'll buy it, install it, make me work with integrators, right. To get it running. And I assume an hour feature show me the dashboard or, you know, some kinds of app. And is that on a, you know, infrastructure is like, you know, our clients say like, you know, let's, let's give a, I don't know, four weeks, three months is whatever pace you are driving six months is right. In terms of, you know, to give insights, right, of their preferences, about their needs and stuff like this. Is this uh, is this uh, openness on the, on the partner scale? The answer to that is yes, for sure. Um, <laughs> people love giving their opinions, I found, consistently in my life. Okay. And especially they love giving their opinions on things that they consider themselves to be experts in. And so whenever you have someone that's regularly using your product, one thing that amazes me is is how much pride they take in 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 using the product and on giving feedback on it. Mm. So I've never had a problem. You know, there's a question of timing here, right? It's mm. not, don't call me up when I'm busy with something else and ask me to fill out a questionnaire yeah. or yeah. answer a survey. Um, so there's a timing element, but I, I've never, it doesn't really matter what the, what the job is. People are always open to giving you feedback if you have a good relationship with them. Um, and my, my only other comment was, you know, We, we have different user personas for our, for our software. One big one for us is installers, right? So we look at the product through the lens of an installer. So mm -hmm. a customer might not just be an end customer, like mm -hmm. a facility manager or mm -hmm. facility operator who's responsible once the building's up and running. It, it also includes installers, and that's a big one for us because often what we're helping our installers do is be more... Um, capital efficient so they're making more money if they're using enlighted versus another product mm -hmm. so that's also a big focus all right so speaking on technology adoption i guess we are come 
we're not able to jump over the big topic in current times in AI, right? And and you know it's it's uh, initial application at least on a public scale, ChatGPT. So what was what was the last thing you you made with or queried with ChatGPT? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I think I asked ChatGPT the other day to explain the laws of thermodynamics to me in a simple way. Because um, I'm not a physicist by training, and but I'm really interested in science and on the physical sciences. So I studied mathematics at school. And I I just wanted to know, in layman's terms, what, what were the laws of thermodynamics to understand another podcast I was listening to. Um, and then I think the other thing I use it for regularly is I use it to generate images in my presentations. Um, mm -hmm rather than you know, do a Google image search and then try and find something that fits, why not generate something that actually fits the story I'm trying to tell, even with a theme, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have the same characters mm -hmm. in your story arc, mm -hmm. very powerful and very, very impressive what you can do. Yeah, nice one. So um, transformer architecture, so a bit of the basis of you know, large language models and foundation models, a bit of an overarching theme, you know, energy-based models, stuff like that. They always, they seem, you know, there were, it's not like last year, the November momentum, mm. let's say, when public adoption came, right? So there was, there, w there were innovations along the line the last 10, 12 years, something like that. What is for you, what was the game-changing element that somehow companies, but also executives, they're like, oh, this is dope. This is, uh, I start a Gen AI initiative. Do you, mm. do you have a, a sense of feeling? What, what, what was that? I think you're right that um, the building blocks have been in place for a while now. Mm. And so the question is, you know, what changed? I think the open sourcing of Llama was big because that enabled one of these large language models, which with a huge number of parameters, for people to see this actually implemented and be able to work with this, that was huge. So that was a big technological impetus in the open source community for driving the change on the technology side. But, you know, even then, um, if you look at the evolution of the GPTs, mm. it wasn't until OpenAI added chat GPT, so a chat interface to these large language models, that it really caught the inspiration of, of the general population. And so I think those two things combined, the open sourcing of, of Llama and the, um, uh, the the chat interface to these models, that those were the two big things which enabled it to really, really take off. Yeah, though, um, so accessibility uh, seemed to be a, a great thing in terms of normal users can interact with complex machine learning architectures, stuff like that. Um, so um, I remember the discourse years ago with the first version of GPT also exposed, right, to too hard to handle, right? <laughs> Basically, right, too, too hard to, because it was already generating text element and a lot of people I've talked to, they're doing summarization and explainability mm. and headline generation and stuff like that. So still text generation stuff, let's say. There was also back in the days doable, Right, and then everybody got the hip and hyped on the very first one, and said like, "Okay, this will disrupt any business, right? And it will disrupt any, you know, I don't know, from regex parser to whatever, you know, aspects to journalists are not safe anymore and stuff like these guys." And then two years, basically zero. I I, I felt like at least on my personal note, right? I felt like serious. So. How comes that, you know, even though the capability obviously increased, but, uh, you know, how comes that this was not adopting by enterprise? What what hinders? And are we coming now at the same point that enterprise, also with the now, the new capabilities, what Llama or, you know, Mistrals or GPTs and what's on, right? Uh, are they still not able to leverage this technology stack? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's certainly there's been a shift in the mindset of executives at large enterprises, right, with with ChatGPT and just the the general applicability of what what such a technology can do. So I remember reading that, you know, with GPT two, one of the initial 
big problems they were trying to solve was was translation, right? Even though translation software has been around for a while, and you know there's been successful attempts at, at, at making that work. And so I remember reading that, you know, one of the big breakthroughs considered in GTP, GPT two was you would give it four examples of of language, so an English to French translation. And then you would use these only four examples to try and translate something that it hadn't seen before, mm. and so it did this, and it did it in a pretty uh, Im like uh, immature way. So it would probably have been better if you'd just looked up the words in the dictionary, and and done like a literal replacement. But I think there were two reactions to GPT two. One was, "Wow, this is amazing! I've only given it four examples, and it's able to bootstrap." And make an attempt at, at a fifth, and there were those people that said, "Well, actually, all you've done is create a really bad translator, <laughs> right?" Um, and I think that's the that's the Rubicon we only crossed with GPT three and above. Mm -hmm. That the people that were in the latter group, the skeptics, couldn't deny it anymore because of the performance of the model. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of you know enterprises adopting AI. Look, you know, enterprises tend to be slower. They have more to lose. They have, that they have bigger ships to steer. Um, so I think there's there's really two problems in enterprising enterprises adopting generative AI. One of them is your classic data security, data privacy, you know, IT problem that um, you know enterprises have a lot of a lot of um, capital stored up in their their brand equity right and if you look at their market capitalization a lot of it is brand equity right and that's the thing really they're trying to safeguard and optimize for is let's not destroy that because that's worth billions of dollars um and so they tend to go slower and enterprises also tend to have people in roles who are you know experts on cybersecurity, experts on it infrastructure and so all these things need to be aligned um, and then I think the other thing that happens is there tends to be an internal fight around things at enterprises. So who owns generative AI at, at, at an enterprise is, is a question that needs to be discovered, right? And wherever, So is it owned by IT? Is it owned by the product lines? Is it owned by the business unit heads? Mm. So the answer for this might be different at different companies or there might be a, a way of a modus operandi that needs to be discovered there. And so for a startup, you don't have this problem because you just have less people that need to make a decision. Mm. Whereas enterprises, it requires a lot, of, a lot of overhead to figure this out. So, But that will mean, that will mean it, um, it needs to be executive, uh, executive decisions moving forward. If you say, like, you know, we are, we are drowning in, into political discussions, left pocket, right pocket, and, or, you know, do and there, but there's clear guidance on executive, like, this is this is decision how you know, operationalized, how maintenance, um, that it seems to be solvable, at least if, if executive, you know, would yeah. enforce it semi. Right? Yeah, I, you know, I think it is an exec, like, let's be honest, um, large language models present such a unique business opportunity that regardless of, you know, a lack of alignment escalating to an executive, it is an executive level problem inherently, is how to use such a powerful transformative technology to to innovate within the company. So it starts being an executive level problem. And all I'm saying is in the layers underneath, mm. you know, people see the same opportunities, right? So people are really interested to get involved with this. And and this is what leads to this kind of who takes the lead and, and how. Um, mm. But I truly believe that, you know, maybe 10 years ago, data science and AI would have been more of a CIO topic. I think nowadays that's been elevated to, to being a CEO topic. There you go, CEOs in the world, hear that? Um, so the, the, the other aspect is obviously that we, the corporates have, have data, right? And we have, I guess, uh, fallen again 
backwards to the aspects with the early machine learning aspects where then it's like, okay, there are these open source models like YOLO for image and stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. And so then, you know, apply to the industrial processes or to the individual use cases and then it's like, okay, it's not work, not going to work out, right? And then, you know, marvelous transfer learning, fine tuning, serious shot learning, you know, these kinds of aspects which also fuel the innovation of um, transformer models basically. Um, so how would you recommend corporates moving further? When should they build their own, you know, architecture? Are, are, are corporates actually ready for <laughs> building own foundation models? Or how do we treat private, you know, data or like confidential data, mm. you know, in these, these kinds of sphere? How do you leverage that effectively? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I think the first question, the first place I would start is do enterprises need to build a strong foundation model like an LLM, like a, an open AI, you know, GPT-4? I, I think the answer to that is for most companies is no. And, you know, why is that? Well, I think a lot of what these large language models are good at is solving or giving information regardless of what the problem is. And that doesn't really fit that's overkill for a lot of enterprises because they have highly specialized problems. And so I think where a lot of the innovation is going to go with enterprises is on solving really specific problems, which, by the way, they've already been doing for decades now using often very advanced machine learning techniques. Um, with one, maybe a few exceptions, one is, is, is customer support. Um, you know, we at Enlighted... We talk a lot about how to meet our customers, how to answer their, their queries quicker and better. And I just think that, that a large language model trained maybe on some internal knowledge base that's private and not exposed to the outside world, this is already possible. And this is this is like 10x better than, than having someone have to respond to an email. So why wouldn't you do that? And so I think there are going to be parts in the business model that can be transformed using AI. I think none of this will involve creating your own large language model. There might be an element of fine-tuning here. And so I think fine-tuning right now from an academic perspective is still difficult without having to incur a lot of cost um, and, and actually generate a different model that then needs to be run by you, the enterprise. Um, but I think in general, you know, the innovation is going to go into um, solving really specific problems which could be trained on a lot smaller data set. Yeah, that could be very, very powerful. Uh, also, like the the example you just mentioned, like if you, if those ten people now would like suddenly have way more time to to dedicate to I don't know to the very unique customer requests, for instance, and the customer would also get their their answers way quicker. That would also like boost customer satisfaction and I guess employee satisfaction as well. Um, I wonder how um, like. Software as a service was like a super like big topic, and now like with the rise of AI and AI being way more prominent, um, how how do you think um, do AI based data products actually compare with uh, software as a service when it comes to to business model attractiveness? Oh, that's a good question. I think they're less attractive. Um, I think once you've captured something. In SaaS, you know, what is SaaS? You're basically trying to capture some deterministic workflow that exists probably in some Excel sheet or some clunky manual process, and you're moving it to the cloud so it's completely observable, completely repeatable. And the gains that come from this, you do it once, and then you've done it for all of time. So then when you, when you serve the next customer, you don't need to add a new developer. You just take what you've done and you you scale it in the cloud, which is generally cheap compared to you know the value that you're providing, and you capitalize on that initial creation process. And yes, okay, software is never always living, so you need to constantly evolve it. But in general, it's incredibly attractive from a business model standpoint. AI is not the same. So first of all, depending on the use case, you might find yourself in the long tail. So you might find yourself really chasing those decimal points of accuracy for a certain outcome. Like if I'm imagining using computer vision in a factory over a manufacturing line, it could be that 0.5% higher accuracy corresponds to $10 million more of revenue per year. 
And chasing that accuracy is a lot more cost intensive from an R&D perspective. So even ignoring the fact that you need to tra- you know, collect a lot of data, train a lot of data, you also need to invest in the infrastructure around the models and on the, on the accuracy, and this is very R&D intensive. And then I think the compute that's needed to support AI products is also more expensive. So I think it's, it's a less attractive, like objectively speaking, a less attractive business model. But um, the, the gains that can be had from AI for certain use cases take you way beyond SaaS. So maybe it's replacing SaaS in some, for some use cases or for some workflows. So instead of having a workflow, you're completely automating it. Like I was, this may be a bit of a tangent, keep me honest here, but I was thinking about, you know, in using ChatGPT, how the Google search or the search workflow is going to change, right? So imagine right now, still for most people, what you do is you go open up Google or your favorite browser, you search for something like present for my three-year-old nephew, right? So then you get taken to a website, you get 10 links, right? That you pick from and you say, okay, this one feels appropriate. Then you, you go to some e-commerce website, you probably need to sign up for it, right? So there's this whole user workflow around signing up. So it could be by the time you've ended up finishing your workflow, it could be 50, 60 clicks that you've made. This is pure SaaS workflow, right? But imagine now you have an AI that instead gives you your top three options in the chat and it makes a recommendation based on data that you don't even have access to on which one is is likely to be the the best option. So now you're, you're going maybe to one, two, three clicks. And so in summary, AI might be less attractive from a business model standpoint, but it's incredibly disruptive. And so companies will need to invest in it. That's such a cool example. And then in the chat, I could even like type like, hey, I, I want a cheaper version or a yellow version or whatever. And then right. like, like really that interaction also in the e-commerce space. But how, what do you say, to, so Gen AI, to AI and, and platform business space gives us the personalization, fair enough. So if I go to shopping, you know, it learns preferences, recommends me the, you know, the white sneakers rather the, 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 the leather shoes, right? Uh, because it's hippish hype with current you know, preferences of, of clothing and stuff like that. Um, now with Jenny, we're moving into a spec that, you know, it's not about learning the preference, but also it learns somehow to generate the content displayed to individuals. So previously we had the ad individualized for us, and now the content is even individualized. So it shows me the colors alike. It shows even the textual representation automatically generated maybe i don't know i could envision to that like so it's it doesn't show me the blank you know a stock image white sneaker but it says like uli likes likes it behind a, a great mustang car and you know and stuff like that and and the news is is the headline is even written differently and it it adopts my preferences so do you see that chain ai enables through this generation capability not only you know recommendation capability but generation capability a, a sort of hyper personalization in the consumer world absolutely um and i think if you're looking at okay so what businesses or what value value propositions will be disrupted by generative ai you know the one you mentioned creativity is a huge one mm-hmm. it is really you know, we were speaking about uh, using uh, ChatGPT to generate images in presentations, right? If I were to pay someone to do this, mm-hmm. it would not only be very expensive versus the $20 I paid for 100 credits in Dali. Um, it would also take a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so generating original content, you know, whether it's images or even graphics. So imagining, you know, the AR, VR, multiverse right i mean who's going to create all of that content right five years ago it would have to be a graphic designer this is incredibly expensive and so i think this is one of the great opportunities with generative ai is is on that creativity space 
And I think the other one is is kind of this companion mm. workflow where um, I already found myself trying to do it. By the way, you know, I wanted to be able uh, to develop a, a chat GPT that spoke in my my style of writing, right? And I'm, I'm sure it's possible. I didn't find out a way of doing this, but this kind of personalization, even on the content you're creating, is is kind of at the intersection between creativity and then having this companion that makes you makes you more productive. So I think this is absolutely inevitable. And this has already been done via A-B testing. So companies will change on a small set of users, certain workflows, and then test how users respond. Mm-hmm. Um, if you make this content more personalized, it will, of course, um, make it more compelling for you mm-hmm. and make you more likely to do what what the company wants you to do. And so this will absolutely be uh, I think a huge area of investment. I, I'd be surprised, frankly, if it wasn't already uh, with the large e-commerce companies that they were looking at that very that very problem. You just touched upon like the creativity, hyper-personalization, um, more efficiency that you can also um, yes, spark through the use of generative AI. So where else do you see um, the the biggest innovation opportunities for now as like next to the e-commerce space i think it's probably this co-pilot area it's it's actually no surprise that you've seen a bunch of products released called co-pilot by the way mm-hmm. um because it's interesting you know, the technology has continued evolving over the last 10, 15 years to make us more productive as humans. You haven't really seen this ev- this emergence of a whole class of hyper-productive people, at least I haven't. I think part of the reason for that is we're still more consuming content than we are producing content. And I think one of the great opportunities with generative AI is more this co-pilot. So, you know, I, I, as CTO, I also get these long email chains of, you know, where people, someone's escalating something to me and they expect me to read through, you know, 5,000 words of text. You can't forget that. Yeah, no, I mean, no, no, no. <laughs> you know, it's... And so having, like, you know, being able to generate a summary for this, being able to automatically capture meeting notes. And yes, okay, it's not perfect and it's going to make mistakes and maybe sometimes those mistakes will be more costly than others. Um but I think this is a tremendous opportunity um, for everyone to basically have their own personal assistant who who helps them be be more productive and get their work done so that they can focus on, on different tasks, tasks that they like doing, tasks that are more strategic. And so I think that's really the third pillar. And if you listen to, um, I recently heard Bill Gates speak about this and someone asked him what's the biggest business opportunity behind generative AI and his response was, a personal, a virtual personal assistant. Mm. So I think there's there's a lot to be done uh, in that space as well. Um, thanks so much for taking us on that um, like deep dive on Gen AI and how how you seeing how you are seeing it and where the opportunities lie. Uh, but may, maybe coming back uh, to Enlightened. By the way, we're currently even in at Enlightened's office. It's it's pretty cool. And uh, what's the next big thing for Enlighted? You, you know, I mentioned we have these these product themes. There's there's a few of them that I'm really excited about. One of them is that I think there's an opportunity to make our technology just more broadly affordable um, for everyone. So we're working on some, um, without giving too much away, we're working on some optimizations on the hardware side. Um, that will reduce the the total cost of ownership from owning a system like Enlighted, so owning basically a an advanced lighting control system that can also do IoT. So we're very excited about this. And then I think the other problem we're really focused on is making IoT more generally available to our customers. Um, if you look at, you know, why isn't IoT more adopted? Part of the reason for this is a lot of IoT solutions require their own infrastructure. So they need some kind of gateway, some kind of edge node that can basically take the data that, that the sensors or actuators are generating and bring it back to the cloud to then do some intelligence, right? And so if you're looking at it from a customer standpoint, 
you know, depending on the use case, they might have to buy 10 or 15 of these systems to cover their use cases. And this adds up to a lot of infrastructure, right? Mm. Which then someone needs to manage. And so one of the ways we're trying to address this at Enlighted is, you know, our sensors are everywhere, right? Where we deploy them, they're in every light fixture. So they're even better than the Wi-Fi system, which is the other way of doing this is, you know, you try and collect this data through a Wi-Fi access point. So we have even better coverage than a Wi-Fi system. Um, And so we're unlocking the capability of our wireless network, which today we use only for internal purposes. So we only use to do our own data services. And we want to unlock this to an ecosystem so that no matter what sensor or actuator you're, you're trying to integrate with, you can pull that data over the Enlighted system and then we make it available to you uh, for whichever application you want to use. So that's something uh, that we're very excited about. And, um, you know, the challenge with that is how do you how do you do this in a standards-based way? How do you create an ecosystem around this? Um, and then what's your business model when you're doing this? Because ideally we want customers to be able to bring recommend and bring their own devices without even having to involve us. So a lot of technology problems to solve in there. Um, but I believe that, you know, the market's slowly starting to adopt IoT. It was There was maybe a bit of a hype curve around this. I remember reading... I think back in 2015 that by 2024, and we're almost there, a quarter of the world's economy should be IoT related. And honestly, the reality of that is it's a small fraction of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we're slowly getting there. The technology's getting better. Battery lives are getting more performant. So instead of having to worry about a battery life of two years and what you're going to do to replace a sensor in two years, you know, battery life's now extend into 10, 15 years. Mm. And so it's making the technology a lot more practical. So, and if you look then on a bit of the, the AI field, you know, let's let's look in the future. Well, what will be the next big thing in AI? Any any guess, any humble statement? <laughs> Moving further? Give it three, four, I think, five years. Yeah. Years, yeah so I like. think th- there'll still be a lot of investment in LLMs. Right, and I don't believe we've reached any ceilings in terms of scaling. So mm. there'll be investments in compute. So I mean, look at Nvidia stock price; it's just gone through the roof. The reason is everyone wants their A100s and H100s and whatever whatever products they're releasing. Mm. Um, there'll be investments in making the algorithms more efficient mm. because I think the transformer-based model architecture is very was a breakthrough, but it's still very inefficient. And also how the algorithms run on the hardware. I mean, we've really started to scratch the surface there. And I think there's still some innovation that needs to happen on the data side. So how do you make data available? How do you wrangle it quickly? And in some cases, how do you generate data which can make your your system better? But the one I'm really interested in is this notion of um, model-free reinforcement learning. So... You know, a lot of the way AI works or machine learning works is you have some outcome that you're trying to replicate. Take the example of baking a cake, right? You say, okay, let's try and bake cakes and then let's have someone to tell us whether these cakes taste good or not. That is not how humans learn. So when you're learning to bake a cake, hopefully (laughs) you have a recipe (laughs) At least either your either your grandmother told you this is how you do it, here are the steps, or you actually have it written down. And then you quality control each step, right? Um, and I think a lot of the models that are used to solve problems like um, chess or poker, and they can solve them really well now, are good because they actually take this multi-step approach. And the, the problem of winning a, a chess game or uh, winning a poker hand can be broken down and enumerated into this multi-step process. But we need to do this in a model-free way. So we can't over-optimize on, on the problem of poker or the problem of chess. And so I think a lot of the innovation will have to come from how to take a complex multi-step task, which human brains are excellent at doing and learning how to do, and how do you break this down into a set of steps um, that can be um you know, assumed or, or done by a machine. So that's the what that's the space I'm watching carefully. Yeah, looking yeah. forward to you know those kinds of innovations. 
So if you if 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 you now reflect a bit of you you by yourself coming from data science from financial aspects data crunching, you know moving further down the let's say the corporate ladder or let's say embracing more accountabilities and responsibilities in your in job role, what would you recommend the younger generation? You know any any small devices you would give them? You know, would you say like hey everybody should do data science now or machine learning or it don't, <laughs> let's let's do software stuff but not data crunching what, what is your you you know younger generation yeah. tip yeah i think um you know if you look at the evolution of 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 software as a good example right and a, maybe a precedent for for how to position yourself in a career you know I, I lose track, honestly, of how many web technologies there are. It feels like every week a new one is being launched. And so I've always had a high level of empathy for the front-end web developer who has to balance a career in learning and managing all these technologies. I think AI is going to be a, a little bit similar um, in that there'll be different models, different techniques, different hardware. And so there'll just be this multiplicity of, of areas you can specialize in or focus on, and it will be constantly changing. There'll be models that we haven't even thought of uh, right now coming out. And so being adaptable, I think, is probably the number one attribute for anyone considering a career in technology. Um, and the advice I would give is... Yeah, it's good to be passionate about the industry you're working on. So think about the applications and how it's actually going to be used. Um, you know, it feels like right now everyone, or not everyone, many people want to work for someone like OpenAI or Anthropic or Google. Or Enlighted. Um, or Enlighted. Well, you know, I don't, wouldn't put us in that category. Um, but I think enterprises have a lot to offer here. And yes, they're a bit slower to adapt and to adopt technologies, but, you know, we have all the data. And so I, I honestly think you could do a lot worse than, than choose to work for Siemens because we just have so many interesting problems to solve. And, you know, when I speak to people from across Siemens, it doesn't matter whether they're in DI or in smart infrastructure in the building product side or they're working on smart grid technologies, um, the problems are there and they're relevant and they will affect everyone. And so circling back to the sustainability theme, one of the reasons why I'm I'm really passionate to work at Enlighted and at, at Siemens is because of the problems. And I know that um, any innovations make, make a big difference um, to the world. So that's the other advice I would offer. And I, I don't feel like I need to tell the next generation this because, um, you know, I have some family members that are... Uh, younger right and and they're just very passionate about causes and about especially about sustainability um so i feel like this intersection between the two between technology and and meaningful applications of the technology will be those are my two bits of career advice find that happy intersection that's very beautiful advice um very deep as well um, th so, Colm, thanks so much for your time and for inviting us um, to your office and for sharing um, your perspective. Um, it's been um, so precious and we learned a lot. And before we finish off, we want to play um, our version of ChatGPT with you. And for the closing, I would like to give you a couple of sentence starters. So I have a couple of prompts and, and you will complete them. Colm, are you up to the last challenge? Let's do it. Let's do it. AI is... AI is taking us from the era of widely available information to the era of widely available intelligence. Ooh, that's a new one, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, big one. Philosophical. Yeah. That's that's column GPT. <laughs> Enlighted is. Enlighted is a great place to work on big problems. There you go. Tech for sustainability is. Tech for sustainability is one of the biggest problems facing society, so it's a good place to spend your career in. Beautiful. And last but not least, if I could invent one rule for everyone in the world to follow, it would be? To be kind. True. 
Calm, thanks so much for, for spending the time with us and sharing you a bit of your insights and your views on, on the role of, you know, not only Siemens stuff, but also a bit of the perspective of the technology trends and, you know, where, where the field is moving. Um, we really appreciated your time and understand, you know, you carved some, something out of your busy schedule. Great. Thanks. I had a great time. All right, folks, then stay tuned. Um, there is so much to come. Uh, stay bold, committed, and open-minded, and we hear us at the next Siemens ALF podcast. Cheers. Thank you.